What's up, everybody? Welcome to your latest installment of Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here with my good friend, James. I've just realized I'm doing, I did this to Mark Heineman. I'm doing this to you. I have agonized for probably like since the first time we appeared on Decouple together. How exactly I'm supposed to pronounce your last name? Like. Oh, it's Play. okay. Fair point though. You'd be you'd be the first person to get it right from the standing start. So <laughs> I was like, this could really go either way for me. So you are here at listener request. I would I've been asked several times about what's up with nuclear in Australia. And I was like, well, I know just the guy to get on. But before we get into all that, I'd like to ask you a little bit about yourself so that people know that, that you're the guy to listen to about this. So what's your background? How did you come to nuclear and what's, what's your experience thus far? Yeah, sure. The, uh, the really quick version is I'm, I'm an electrical engineer, worked in the power sector. You know, in, I've been an electrical engineer practicing for, for nearly 17 years. Worked in the power sector before moving into upstream oil and gas. So spent power generation and then now, and still work in the upstream oil and gas sector. Also worked in the solar sector for quite a few years. You know, I really had a strong conviction that, you know, put us on a stable, let's say a stable um, environmental ecological trajectory that we needed to pursue, pursue wind and solar. I felt that deeply. Of course, you know, when you really start to try and develop your own projects as we did and, and you're running cash flow models and you're doing estimates, it becomes apparent how quick, uh, how uh, reliant those investments are upon subsidies. And it also becomes apparent how much you need takeoff for the energy that you sell from wind and solar that is you know, price stable, let's say, to underwrite the investment. And, and we didn't have that at the time in Australia. What we, what we had is power prices collapse in the middle of the day when all the solar is on. <laughs> so we, we, we couldn't make our solar project stack up. And that, that, for me, started me out on a pretty significant deep dive. I look back actually a little bit, you know, a little bit self-consciously and think, well, how, how as an electrical engineer who'd been working in the industry did I not, did it take me so long to realise that, that there was just sort of mm. fairly glaring deficiency with the intermittency of solar and wind? But anyway, anyone who's gone down that rabbit hole and, and cares about the environment, cares about the um, future of, you know, the place that they live, the economic future, the industrial future, good jobs, that sort of thing, will wind up, will wind up really sort of coming to the conclusion that your nuclear has to be part of the energy mix. And so nearly four years ago, I founded Down Under Nuclear Energy, along with some, you know, some colleagues in the upstream oil and gas sector to look at what what would it take to bring, from an economic perspective, to bring nuclear energy to Australia? That was a pretty naive undertaking, but we've learned a lot. And, and what we've sort of discovered is it's not really, not really a question of economics in Australia. It's a question of politics and it's a question of culture. It's a question of public, you know, public perceptions. And so that's where we're trying to focus our time. Or, you know, we have been sort of for the last 18 months. So I think that's really fascinating. So you're the second person I've had on from the ONG world. The other one's Mark Heineman, uh, who runs a small fracking firm out in Colorado. And you're the second guy who I've had who has tried to make the renewables thing happen and then been quickly disabused of it. <laughs> Brian Gitt was the first one. And I mean, I, of course, was also committed to the extent that I was committed to anything to renewables and thought that was the way, the truth, and the light, which is just to say that it's powerful that people can change their minds and that we have like lived that 
I think that is something that it, sometimes nuclear advocacy can get a little bit doomerish because the obstacles feel so high. But, you know, just remembering that we ourselves changed our minds is, I think, huge. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to... It, it, it takes a bit to change your mind. Um, and, and in my case, it was a simple... The, 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 the numbers and the reality of what we were trying to achieve in the, in the utility-scale solar space did not stack up and and you know, I realized they would never stack up you know for a to be a really sort of significant component of, of the energy system it's not to say they don't have a role to play they do and you know you and I have mutual friends who I would say are nuclear maximalists you know I would yeah, caution right. to say that don't don't dismiss the role that solar and wind can play but but it's a comparatively modest role in my mm-hmm. view yeah I think yeah yeah and Okay, so you said a, a bunch of interesting things that I want to I want to kind of go through, and maybe we can sort of take them in order. And the first one you said is that for Australia, the issue is not economic, which I take also to mean that it's not even necessarily an industrial hurdle to clear. Obviously, there will be needs for human capital. Obviously, there will need to be some infrastructural competence and construction accomplished. But why isn't that a hurdle? I think that's a surprising thing to say. Yeah, so it's a good point, and and you know when we were texting about this, I think you I think you said in the in the text why can't Australia build nuclear? And my first response was to go, well, Australia can build nuclear. Yeah. As a matter of yeah. fact, and you that, filthy yank. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, so maybe we can very quickly talk about why Australia can. Yeah, that does have great. the capacity to build nuclear, but then why we choose not to? Definitely. So, you know, at, at the end of World War II, we had a pretty, I would say, in, industrially small and not very capable economy. Mind you, it was still punching well above its weight for a size, but you know, big industrial projects were something we hadn't done before. We then had the Snowy Mountains scheme, which brought skilled labour from all over the world, particularly Europe, after the end of World War II. And, and that was, a, that was a, an immense hydroelectric project, an irrigation project. And, and that was sort of, I would say, when Australia started to discover its... It, ha- it started to become a little bit more confident in these undertakings. And then between, you know, let's say, that period... And, you know, about the year 2000, maybe the mid-2000s, we built dozens of large coal-fired power stations, refineries, LNG plants, petrochemical facilities, you know, large pipeline systems, you name it. Okay, so the, the, the engineering and the project management and the supply chain skills required to build a, to build a large complex industrial facility are very present in Australia. We've got a lot of experience doing it, and we can we can do it. Nuclear would not be would not be stretching us in that regard. Now it's true to say that we don't have a large civilian nuclear workforce, but that's not the same as having no nuclear. And you guys have medical workforce. isotopes too, right? Yeah, correct. So so in Sydney, um, in yeah, in pretty close to the middle of Sydney, actually, or a little bit south, but there is a a very a well-run, hard-working medical um, isotope and scientific reactor. And we've, we've had, this is the third reactor Australia's had. You know, the workforce there is, is very competent. They're very, I would say, connected with their international peers, you know, the States, Europe, Canada. We have a regulator 
that's been regulating not just the upstream part of the fuel cycle in uranium mining, but also the waste disposition and that sort of thing for the Australian Nuclear Science Technology Organisation. So we have a regulatory body. From a standing start, if you, if you surveyed the non-civilian nuclear countries around the world and said, which one is capable of moving fastest and most competently towards um, a nuclear program, Australia would have to be be up there. You know, we've signed yeah, you'd have all to be the at least in the running. Yeah. Absolutely. We've signed all the relevant international safeguarding treaties, non-proliferation treaties. You know, we we're a member of the IAEA. We're on the Gen 4 forum. So you're it, buying it's nuclear not a submarines, stretch. you know. <laughs> I mean the, the nuclear submarines is an interesting one. That was a that was a fairly momentous decision. Mm-hmm. But you know it was the, the political spin that, that sort of accompanied that was well because they don't need to be refueled for 30 years, we don't have to have a civilian nuclear capability to, to deal with refueling and, and deal mm, with, that's mm. a, you know, that's- That's interesting, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that that was the, that was how they, the subs got bipartisan support. You know, the reality is, is you know, most people I've spoken to, both in Australia, that are sort of close to that submarine program, not directly involved, but close to it, as well as internationally is, that is, not a that, that that position is not tenable it's not sustainable yeah, and we will have to develop <laughs> some sort of nuclear yeah. um, civilian nuclear scientific workforce industrial workforce here yeah so australia can build nuclear if it so chooses it just chooses not to and that's probably a bit more of a, a more relevant question yeah so then let's get right into it you you intimated that it was part cultural part public perception i can guess at the public perception (laughs) elements of it without uh, much difficulty though i'm sure that there are some unique specifics so what's the cultural hurdle here what is the barrier well maybe, maybe we could start with what's the legal barrier and then look at the environment that the in which the legal barrier came about in. Uh, right. and, and here I'm talking about the fe- in federal law, not state law. There are some state bans as well. So, and I just also want to call out Dane Ackerman, formerly of Bright New World, who's done an extraordinary job of documenting the kind of really, I would say, sleazy, rather embarrassing way that Australia's anti-nuclear legislation uh, crept into the, uh, crept into being. Mm. Back in 1998, you know, basically there was legislation before um, parliament to combine two regulators. So we had two separate nuclear regulators doing different parts of the fuel cycle, bring them together, and they were going to be the sole regulator that would regulate the new reactor that we were planning to build, which has since been built in Lucas Heights. Pretty mundane stuff. There's stuff that lawmakers should be able to agree on and, and move forward, right? Anyway, um, it passed the lower house and was in the Senate and in the Senate, and again, I'm not going to provide you with the link so the viewers can go and read Dane Ackerman's excellent article. Essentially, when there were 10 senators out of 76 seven sitting senators, I think is the number, present there late one night, a clause was inserted to basically keep the um, Australian Greens and Australian Democrats on side with other big picture legislation that was happening at the time. That the current Prime Minister, John Howard, was his first term, he had this big economic policy of goods and services tax, I think value-added tax, they call it in other parts of the world. He wanted to get it legislated. He needed their agreement because um, he didn't have a majority in the upper house. 
and there was a basically a, a deal done to say, well, we're going to put this ban prohibiting any development of a civilian nuclear fuel cycle, uh, including power stations, in this environmental clause, in this legislation that has nothing to do with nuclear power, frankly. It's got to do with regulating a scientific reactor. But, you know, in return, we will, we will endorse your goods and services tax reform. So it happened, it got put in there. And the context at the time, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm the first to criticise politicians, present and historical, but Australia had very cheap power prices, cheapest in the world at that time. Mm. It's one of the few reasons we could competitively manufacture things uh, in Australia back then. So we didn't need nuclear. We had vast amounts of coal. Carbon emissions, you know, no one was talking about carbon emissions in 1998. No, no. Um, and, and it's like- The Greens weren't talking about carbon emissions in 1998 in Australia. Right. And if you're not going to be so cheaper in coal, don't bother, right? Like that's that's one of the lessons, you know? Yeah. It's, um, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't need nuclear in that environment. Mm -hmm. The other thing as well, you know, when we can talk about this sort of Australian anti-nuclear sentiment has, pretty, has a pretty long tradition within, I would say, the, the political left. But there was a reasonably broad Australian anti-nuclear position at that time because the French had been conducting nuclear weapons testing in the South Pacific. And, yeah. and that, was, that was getting a lot of publicity. And, you know, it, it's impossible to unpick civilian nuclear energy from military, military nuclear yeah. applications for people who kind of watch the news to get their information, right? Like, that's, they, don't, they don't disassociate the two. No, I and mean, so, that's why Adams for Peace was created here. Because Eisenhower was like, we have to <laughs> make people realize that it's not just bombs. You know, absolutely, and you know that was you know extraordinary insight that he and you know the people around him had. We didn't have anything like that here, and uh, so there was broad, broadly, the Australian public not not wild about the idea of nuclear. So, no political loss, right? But that's why we just we we made a decision to enshrine it in law to not build nuclear power. Now that law can be changed, very simply. You know, laws are changed all the time. Mm -hmm. So, why don't we change it? Well. There's a lot of reasons we don't change it. We, we do have a need for nuclear energy in this country now. It's contested. You know, a lot of people will say we can get there with solar, wind, batteries, and maybe a little bit of gas. You know, I think it's a significant body of evidence that casts, you know, significant doubt on that as a, as a viable solution in its own right. Mm -hmm. But there's a bigger reason that the, the political class in the country won't let's say grasp the nettle and remove that legislation is that there's not a good reason for them to do so what i mean by that is if you're going to spend political capital on convincing a population that it's a good idea to remove a nuclear energy ban you want to make damn sure that someone from the private sector is going to come in and build a nuclear power station Yep. Spend the money in your economy, mm -hmm. build up, you know, the industrial capability and complexity and, you know, start a new industry, right? Then you would sort of go, yeah, sure, we can spend the political capital because there's going to be some real electoral during the development. It's not obvious that, in fact, I can tell you unequivocally, there is no private sector actor um, mm -hmm. off scale who is looking at the Australian wholesale electricity market, the NEM, we call it, and saying, 
Yeah, I really want to do a nuclear project in that um, regulatory I, I would, and, and market environment. I would love to compete in that. That sounds yeah. great. <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. So the politicians are in a bit of a difficult situation where they're just saying, there's no credible proponent. It's not worth us spending the political capital. End of story. You know, so that's that's one aspect. And until there is a credible proponent who's prepared to start putting some money down to, to explore the form and the conditions under which a nuclear program in Australia could be successful with a public-private partnership, I just don't think they're going to be that interested. So that's one aspect. Um, another aspect is, you know, you, you look at Australia since the end of World War II and you look at the prime ministers we've had and, you know, Australia's been blessed. I wouldn't say we've had politicians that would, you know, set the world on fire in a positive sense. But, <laughs> but, but we have been largely blessed with competence. And, mm. you know, that, so, so we ought not to complain too much. But if you look at the 16, I think it's 16 prime ministers we've had since the end of World War II, all well, 13 of them come from a legal or an economics background. Okay. The exceptions are... Kevin Rudd, who was a, a reasonably recent prime minister, who was, I would say, an intellectual technocrat, very deep knowledge on China and some other areas, not really any knowledge or first-hand experience of, of, of industry or industrial technology, pharma. And, and you know, and then, of course, the person, the, the prime minister who, who kicked off the Snowy Mountain Scheme at the end of World War II, Ben Chifley, who was a train driver. And he was probably, I would say, our last prime minister with a, a coherent and a coherent industrial policy that was informed by his first-hand experience as a, as a train driver in the in the rail system. So since then, you know, we've we've had a political leaders that hear the term economic complexity and vaguely understand that it's a good thing, but really to them, it's just some sort of you know archaic economic metric, right? They wouldn't understand it if they saw it. In many instances, it's not to say that incompetent or bad people they're not right. but people who have worked in heavy industry and in technology manufacturing can they know what economic complexity means is because they've seen it from the shop floor and i think in the united states for example probably in europe there's a very rich industrial and engineering history so these things are valued they're they're seen as as having merit and in their own right whereas in australia we have a very economically dry polity that basically says does the this is the only, this is the first and last question that's asked. Do the economics stack up? And it's a very sort of shallow application of economic understanding to, you know, do the economics stack up, yes or no? And, you know, on that basis, it, it's difficult to make the case. It's difficult to make the case for nuclear in a, in a sort I, of half an hour pitch. I, I completely agree. I actually think that things have changed in the US since probably around the energy crisis in, of the 70s to especially with offshoring and things like that to really damage not just the physical aspects of economic complexity here but also the regard for economic complexity there is i have a few out of print books from the 80s that were all panicked about offshoring and deindustrialization and they all have titles like manufacturing matters and things like that, you know, yeah. like, and they make these cases very uh, forcefully that you, if you lose these things, you lose more than you can even count. Like that, once that it's gone, absolutely true. Once it's gone, to recover it is a project no one's really been successful at. 
And I mean, there's the famous quote from somebody, I think, in George W. Bush's staff who said, you know, well, it doesn't matter whether you're selling microchips or potato chips as long as they sell. And I think the first gut, the real gut check for that was COVID. And I think we're having another one right now with the energy crisis over the world. So let me ask you this. First off, maybe we should clarify terms. I think you and I have a mutual understanding of what we mean when we say economic complexity. But for listeners that might be coming to these things for the first time, how would you describe what that means? That is a good question. For me, economic complexity means a society and an economy that is capable of doing lots of different diverse things. It is capable, it is is able to give rise to a class of people, both professionals and skilled craftsmen who are capable of maintaining complex mental abstractions in their head, understanding complex processes and chains of processes to create valuable outputs, and then building upon that in a way that in a way that develops economic complexity and human knowledge further. Mm-hmm. It means being able to do lots of stuff and do it pretty well. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a really that's not a textbook version. But sure. I think that's a good walk in your back pocket. Roughly what it means, I think, to me. Yeah. 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 Okay. So here's my... So, so, so Germany would be an example of, you know, and the United States, I mean, it, it, as yeah. well. We but still Germany make things would be an example of, Yeah. Still make plenty of things in the United States. You know, in Australia, we used to make cars. We, we were one of the, you know, I think it's down to about nine nine or 10 countries in the world that had a completely self-sufficient domestic indigenous car industry, right? no longer it wasn't valued it just wasn't valued and so yeah, it's we, tragic it's, don't it's, manufacture cars anymore yeah, that was really reasonably recently i mean that's the big panic over the, the industrial ascendancy of japan in the 80s and the kanban revolution you know it, it was a type of human capital a way of doing things that created a new paradigm for manufacturing and development that the West learned probably all of the wrong lessons from. They looked at it and they were like hyper-efficient, like everything is just in time, really lean. We're going to lay everybody off. We're going to start outsourcing to contractors. And in Japan, that is not what it looked like. (laughs) You know, countries like Japan and Korea have a totally different industrial system, whether it's uh, Miti or Maitai in Japan, however you want to call it, or the Chabel system in Korea. It is not like the, as we were saying in the US, the 1099 contractor economy that a lot of that stuff managed to make. So this is a long way around of bringing my <laughs> to the next question in regards to Australia, which is how is it possible, do you think in the long run to shift the understanding of economics in Australia to culturally value something like economic complexity? And if so, what do you think are the most persuasive avenues for making that type of case? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good question. And, you know, and I would say what makes it a little bit more complex and more difficult is that it is a long-term project. You know, you can't have a government come in with a new government come in with a head of steam and go, 
industrial policy, economic complexity, let's get after it, and then three years later be voted out. You will develop very little of value in three years' time. It is a cumulative process that I, you know, I think would take at least a decade to even wind up to be, to be recognisable. Crisis, crisis, in my darker moments, I, I think that it requires crisis of some sort. You know, we've, we've had COVID, we've seen what's happened to, people have had a taste of, even now, the, the, it's not that the shelves in the shop are bare, but there's a lot of gaps in the shelves that were never there before. So people are getting mm-hmm. a sense that our supply chains may be in some, for some, in some instances too long, too unwieldy, too uncertain. If you think that's true of the supermarket, wait until you move into the industrial economy and you oh, see what yeah. our supply chains look like. Then it's oh, terrifying. I mean, the the I have to say, like Australia has some of the has had some of the most impressive trucking feats I've ever seen. The huge freight trucks that are almost like trains the way that those guys can drive things almost through the wilderness, no problem, is a high level of skill, that exact type of human capital we're talking about, and the shortages of being able to get those types of truckers to commit to that supply chain, which is vital for Australia, Mm. as far as I can tell, is worrying to me, and I don't even live there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's true. I, I think within, in terms of the distribution network within Australia and, and, and the things we produce locally, we're food self-sufficient, you know, we're energy self-sufficient, excluding liquid fuels. So internally, it's not too bad, but that's sort of on a kind of hour by hour, day by day basis, right? But our big industrial facilities that, you know, let's say keep the lights on or, you know, produce, you know, unload ships or, you know, transfer liquid fuels or gas around the place, so manufacture petrochemicals. The pumps, the valves, the instrumentation, the industrial controllers, the huge range of equipment they require that needs to be repaired and replaced constantly is 100% reliant on international suppliers, Mm. 100%. So Mm. we operate these and we design and operate these, these large complex industrial facilities, but absolutely none of the components that go in to do that come from Australia. So we have an industrial exposure to supply chains that um, I think most people are ignorant of. But getting back to your question, how do you how do you make people aware of it and, and to try and you know maybe maybe change the things that people value? Pursuing economic complexity will come with additional cost, certainly in the certainly in the um, early stages of it. There's no question of that. I mean, these long supply chains have given us very, very cheap consumer goods. So it's a difficult case to make to say, let's let's understand that everything is going to cost a little bit more for an undefined period of time, you know, until we build up these domestic capabilities. It's not even clear, and here I'm, I'm starting to sound really negative. It's not even clear that we have the human capital anymore to do this quickly and efficiently. You know, it may take a long time. You know, I would say the the scientific and mathematical education in Australia is is not what it was 20 or 30 years ago. And and a lot of work needs to be done. We've got really smart young kids in this country. There's no shortage of them, but they're not often, they're not always coming out of high school or university, a really solid foundation in, in math and science. So it could be a long process to build up that economic complexity. But I, I think, you know, I really do think the best, so this crisis can always do it, right? We don't have something, the lights are off, 
we can't get trucks to the supermarket because we don't have the fuel. A bit of a deep dive, a bit of soul searching. You know, maybe maybe that would go a long way. I'm not sure. But one one other thing I think is is the more aspiration aspect of economic mm. complexity, which is you know those jobs well paid. Yeah, they're rewarding. Yeah, in a way that a lot of modern jobs simply are not. And it's not just a question of pay, though that's important. It's a question of, yeah. I, I, one book I'm really fond of is Dave Graeber's, you know, On the Rise of Bullshit Jobs. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've worked at different parts of, of different industries and, you know, it, there are aspects to my own job that definitely <laughs> kind of go that way from time to time. But broadly, I, you know, I have a sense that what I do is is useful and, and contributes and, 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 and to... to to, to the community and the society in which I live in some way. There are a lot of jobs that simply don't fall into that category. As Dave Graeber in his book points out, uh, that is very true in Australia. That is very true here. You know, and people, people, people feel it. People, you know, I talk to young people, I mentor a few young professionals and young engineers, and there's this sense that, you know, when studied hard for four years to get a engineering degree, they've come out and, their job is just not as rewarding. They're not doing the difficult, complex, needle-moving things that they want to do. They've become, you know, they've, they've gone straight into a career of, I would say, technical administration. You know, so there's an aspirational thing there to give people more satisfaction in their jobs and more pride that they're really benefiting their, the community in which they live. So maybe, maybe that would be part of the sales pitch. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely think that there's a pervasive, you know, sort of sense of drift that people feel drift. in their what? everyday lives. And I think that, you know, there's a lot to really love about what mass production and even mass consumption have brought into our lives. But one of the things that I think advocates of those things can miss and believe me, I advocate for those things, is the idea of the dignity of work and what it means to have a job that matters and the fact that labor is a part of being the human animal and so much as being political as part of or creative or procreative or romantic, you know, or all of these things, that that is part of the human life. And we can't live in a perfect world where every job is maximally meaningful. There will always be some level of BS, but I think we get a sense that there is a famine of meaning in our work lives and it can't be remedied by offsets into more meaningful forms of leisure. I agree completely. Yeah. I wish I, I wish I could have given it those words, but yeah, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Emmett. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah, I think this is where you and I are really aligned. So just to, to, to move back into nuclear a little bit, because we've panned out and I think that's good because focusing too much on nuclear can kind of miss the bigger societal picture of what's important about industry and energy. What's been sort of the broad strokes of how advocacy for nuclear has been moving along since you've gotten involved with it? What's going on? Just give me a rundown. Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. I think you're probably going to, you're probably going to force me to remember uh, <laughs> where we started and where we've got to over the last four years. So when the 
current government that is currently trying to get itself re-elected was, was elected three, three and a bit years ago. They undertook a national, I think it, I think it was actually called an inquiry, run by Standing Economics Committee or Standing Environmental and Economics Committee within the Senate to look at the, you know, what, what role did nuclear have in Australia's energy future? You know, that was, a, we contributed to it. Many others contributed to it. I think it was a good inquiry. Certainly the report that came out of that inquiry was encouraging. Unfortunately, it hasn't gone anywhere. The two largest states, New South Wales and Victoria, had similar inquiries around the same time. So there was these three kind of inquiries that there was a bit of a head of steam for a bit in the in the nuclear advocacy space that, you know, the politicians are, are thinking about this, they're, they're considering it seriously. Yeah, I would say that that's, that's petered away. The There was also some interest around that time because power prices were very high. Very, very high. You know, we went from having the cheapest electricity in the world to having some of the most expensive electricity in the world. In, in a very short order, it must be said, you know, I, I'm, I'm led to believe Australia comes in for some international criticism for being dependent on coal, but no country has spent more per capita trying to deploy solar and wind than Australia, not even Germany. No, so that, we've given, that's yeah, wild. per capita, we've spent more. That's so we've wild. given it a red hot crack and we've learned a lot. Well, I don't know, maybe we haven't learned anything, but for, for a variety of reasons, mainly to do with the fact that we're also quite dependent now on gas as the marginal, as the marginal cost setter, let's say, of, of electricity. So that combined with a very high penetration of renewables that were, that were coming online and the fact that some of our coal-fired power stations aren't being run very efficiently, they're not being run very well, they're starting to become less reliable. We had these huge power prices uh, and they're shutting down as well. Uh, sorry, I should mention yeah, they're um, retiring, right? I mean, they're actually in a race to retire. They're, they're, they're falling over each other, trying to retire first. Yeah, at the moment. We're losing like, I don't know, like 30 gigs in the next decade of coal. It's a huge shortfall. That, that's that's larger than Australia's entire grid. Anyway, so <laughs> power price is really high, so it's topical. Well, power prices then came down a bit. International gas prices came down. And when international gas prices came down, Australian electricity prices also came down. And so, you know, there was a collective sigh of relief. The government stopped worrying about it for a little while. Well, that's that's changed. So a few things have changed. One, of course, the AUKUS deal, which was announced last year, where the um, US and the UK would assist Australia to somehow get nuclear submarine, nuclear propelled submarines. You know, that, that and we did, we did quite a bit of polling around that time to sort of get a, a sense of how that was changing people's attitudes to, towards nuclear and at least to consider civilian nuclear energy. And it, it was changing them a lot. So that, that shifted the needle really positively. We're going to redo that polling later this year and see if we, that, that interest has been maintained or if it's petered out. And the other thing, of course, that's happened is power prices have come back up. It was always going to happen, but this is making the advocacy a little bit more effective, I'd say. So in March last year, a parliamentary friendship group of nuclear industries was started. That's been, I would say, a really good body for um, political engagement. You know, they, they're they hungry for information and, and, and many others have, have had the opportunity to either through Zoom or actually go to Canberra and present on different aspects of nuclear technology. So it could be the economics, it could be the regulatory environment, could be the safeguarding, could be the you know, technical aspects. You know, there's a there's a lot of work to do, but there is a, there is now a forum for for engaging with politicians formally, and that I think that's been really important Great. and and effective. 
But ultimately, it will come down to the political calculus, and and we have to work towards a we have to work towards a future. Advocacy has to then move out of advocacy and into something a bit more tangible. And so, we, you know, getting back to that point, where why would politicians spend the political capital if you don't have a developer lining up ready to build a nuclear power station, or at least signalling that they're going to? Um, you know, in the absence of a credible credible proponent, I don't see the political calculus making sense. And so that's, I think that's the next area of focus is to, is to convince a credible proponent either in Australia, but probably in a JV with you know, an international nuclear. Um, it seems like there's a deal that could be struck with somebody who's got the reps in to successfully reliably crank out reactors. Like if I'm you guys, you know, I'm not, but if I'm you guys, I'm taking a look at what I'm taking a look at Korea. I'm taking a look at various other people to see if there's some sort of partnership that can be struck to gain off of their, to draft off of their successes. Yeah. And I I think, I think that's, I think that's what it would take. And, you know, it's not, it's not, no one's going to come in and say, oh yeah, we'll put the money down for it. Just change the law. At the very best, what you could hope for is, you know, we've done a preliminary look at what it would take. We think there's an opportunity to look at this further yeah, we think there's something there, but dear government, first you're going to need to change that law, and then yeah. we're going to spend some serious money fleshing out the concept and doing the you know pre-feasibility assessments and that sort of thing. So, you know, we we are trying to steer advocacy in the direction of finding a credible proponent who will make it worth the politician's while to. Okay, well, I I love that. That is a path that makes sense to me. It's better than just a hope and a prayer. It is practical, you know. And I know that I have some listeners in Australia, some with technical backgrounds. So if they wanted to reach out and figure out how to pitch in, how how could they do that? Yeah, certainly. So I can, we, we're not on social media. I'll mm-hmm. say that, you know, you and I have spoken about that previously. It's just, <laughs> it's just not a space we're interested in. We yeah. Totally. Plenty of reasons we, not to be interested in it. Yeah, we, we can't we can't contribute in that space. But what we can do is we can leave some contact details uh, in the show notes, mm-hmm. and you know, we're we're always thrilled to hear from people. You know, we've had we've had people just reach out to us, cold call us, and and give us some really good ideas in the past as well. So uh, we're always looking to collaborate. And yeah, please please, if any of your viewers want to reach out. All right, sounds wonderful, James. Thank you so much for joining me. Emmett, thanks for having me on. It's good to talk with you again. And we're going to have to have one of our uh, non-nuclear catch-ups soon. I agree. (laughs) I'd love that. I would love that. So everybody, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.